Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. Trig V, I got an interesting package in the mail a couple of days ago. I waited and left it on my desk, and then I figured you might need it, and I, I did open it, so sorry about that, but it's a little bit worrying. Wait, the was cover, it, was it the, the, the book says hired, so oh, what's going on? Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I probably should have talked to you about that. Uh, I booked a great guest for the podcast. It's, it's not about me. It's about the podcast, I swear. Oh, way to tread water. Uh, where our guest today is the author of b- both of the books in the package. Hired is the first book. And then Ignite, Engage, Retain. George Murray is our guest today. George is a award-winning author. And it's based on his own experience, not only from the hiring perspective, but also as a longtime C-level employee. So George Welcome, is... George. And uh, George has also served internationally and also offers individual coaching and businesses, ultimately just a really cool guy. And so I thought that since he knows so much about job transitions and about employee retention, I thought that'd be really great. But then I forgot to tell you that. So that's why I got a book that talked about that. Okay. Well, all all is forgiven. uh, Hey, George, welcome. Great to see you. I appreciate it. I'm humbled and I am... Looking forward to the discussion. Well, thanks. So let's start at the beginning. What happened that you got the uh, gift of unlimited free time and and no income from your employer? Well, you know, um, I tell people that uh, career transition is definitely humbling, if anything at all. It is definitely, um, I think, a time for self-reflection. Again, the last couple of months, or excuse me, last couple of years with post-COVID, where a lot of people have kind of second-guessed the roadmap. I found that career transition is an emotional roller coaster ride, and you're more tie- down than you are up. And so I decided I, I needed to write this process because there's a lot of great books on it, but nothing about the entire process from the time that you left to the time that you land. How do you cut that time in half? Yeah, and I think that's often the the challenge when you change jobs is you go through a grieving process because you spend more waking hours at work than you do just about anything. And so when that gets taken away, maybe through fault of your own, maybe not through fault of your own, what do you do with yourself? So that's a jarring enterprise. So how did you handle it when you got let go and before you started writing the book and you decided to create yourself a process? Because that's kind of, you're a process guy. You're a chief operating officer. You've been in the military. I want to say that you have a fair amount of engineering experience. Is that that's correct. And operations? Yes. Yeah, yeah well, I guess for me, the fact was, is I, I didn't go well the first time. The first couple of months, I was very frustrated, like most people. It's one of the things that they don't teach you in school that they probably should, is, you know, how do you overcome, you know, job loss and, and securing your next opportunity? And so after, you know, probably a prolonged time frame, I just looked in the mirror and said, hey, you know what? I'm just going to control the things I can control. And that's kind of the big separation. I think people realize that there's a lot of stuff out there. You just can't control. 
I don't know if I'm going to get hired today, but I can at least have gratitude for the things that I do have. And I can actually start to build on that. You know, even if you've got a very, very small network and you're an introvert, like I was back in 2016, you can speak to family and friends. And then that kind of multiplies as they introduce you to folks. And as I said, you know, in career transition, you want to spend at least 99% of your time with people in jobs because you want what I call career cheerleaders in the workforce speaking your praise. Wow. That makes a ton of sense. So what in that first element did, did you kind of, I think when, when I've been in that, in that space, what I did is sort of created a schedule. Yes. Is that, and is that, that from X to Y, I'm going to do this from Y to Z, I'm going to do this. And then I'm, the other thing that I did was take personal time and get outside, walk around, do something else. Absolutely. Just to, to create a certain discipline and a cadence of, you get your mind set on what you're going to do every day. And you are you spot on. Yeah, you, you're spot on. As a matter of fact, I call it, I label it the day in the life, you know, prior mm-hmm. to losing that opportunity, whether it's a reduction in workforce, termination, et cetera, is, is that you've left a structured life. You know, you got up at a certain time, you did certain things, you went to the office, you had meetings, you had KPIs, all that is wiped. And if you don't put that process in place, before you know it, even though each day may seem like a month, before you know it, three months go by and you have very little to show for it. So one of the process steps that I help people in job transition is, is what am I supposed to do hourly, daily, weekly that moves the needle in the right direction? And is that all just reading websites and firing resumes? What, what, <laughs> else, what, what else goes into it? Absolutely not. You know, as a matter of fact, and we're going to client right now, I've uh, been out for you know, a, a number of months, almost a couple of years and um, over 500 resumes submitted, no job interview. Well, wow. if you know 1% or less time, you'll secure an opportunity through submitting a resume. Mm-hmm. So say that again, because that's a, an alarming statistic that I think needs to be repeated. Less than 1% secure an opportunity through submitting a resume. And you see them on LinkedIn. I'm sure you have in the last six weeks, you know, with all this tech layoffs. The national average to secure your role through networking is 80% of the time or greater. So where are you supposed to spend most of your time? Networking. Networking, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, and I I bet it probably compounds the fact that most resumes are read by robots now. And if you don't have it, like if maybe, maybe he was sending out the wrong kind of resume or it wasn't, you know, readable or scannable or something, or you know, it was just the wrong, the wrong algorithm was leading him to the wrong things. Right. So you well, totally wait, need wait, to mix wait, it up, before right? Before you get to, before you get to George, I, I think you also just shared something particularly revelatory, Dave, about the robot. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes. you, let's roll that out and explain to the listeners who might not actually know mm-hmm. what exactly is that? George, can sure. you help illuminate that? Because I sure the automated the automated tracking system that all the HR folks love to hate and hate to love. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's a process in which it screens out the best candidates, and for that reason, that's part of major frustration with people in job transition as well as people in the work environment. It is that it's lost the the, the human. Uh, touch factor. And that's mm-hmm. really what you're going when you're through you're the interviewing process. It's really trying to figure out, hey, can I work with this person? A, are they qualified? Well, the resume will tell that. Now I need to figure out, can I have, you know, can I go to lunch with this person after a really tough day? 
that's kind of all that process. And it's not in that ATS system. Right, right. The scanner bot won't won't necessarily tell you if that person is a good hangout. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think those things put together, I think, are, are, are shocking because I think everybody is sort of built on that framework of find a job application, figure out if you're qualified, send a resume. And so what I know when I came out of college in the 90s and the early 2000s, I would agonize over every turn of phrase on my resume and it, I would go over and over and over again. But you guys are saying that that's not actually helpful as much anymore. No, um, a lot of the processes are really antiquated. They're old, 20 years. I mean, submitting a resume is really not the, I mean, and I see that a lot of times, especially when I was in first career transition. Oh, here's my resume. Well, that's mm-hmm. really not a way, great way to lead off. It's really to get and develop a relationship over a period of time. And the, and the resume is really an afterthought, right? It's like, right. hey, just send me your resume. I've, I've really, I've confirmed that you've met the expectations. And I think you'd probably be a good addition to our team. Oh, by the way, send me your resume. Sure. One of the things that we, you, you just mentioned it with the candidate that you're, that you're coaching is there's sometimes, especially in times of COVID, a pretty significant gap in employment. So how do you share with people or how, how do you encourage them to share what they've been doing or, you know, to kind of cover that gap? Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, one of the challenges is, you know, reestablishing who you are in job transition, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of things, I mean, my first career transition after that first three months of frustration, I looked in the camera and I'm like, okay, well, I hadn't ate very well in the last probably couple of years and I've gained a bunch of pounds. I'm not sleeping well. And now it's time for me to really focus on me. So in seven months in my first career transition, I got out, awkwardly walked, jogged, started running, and I dropped 42 pounds. Well, that's not only going to help you physically and emotionally, but you're going to have more confidence because you feel and look better and you have more energy, right? So it's it's really, you know, back to that day in the life. How do I structure that? And then how do I continue to tweak that on a regular basis? You know, every I had a regiment every Saturday from 7.35 to 8.15. It was kind of a a stop-start continue model. Okay, what am I going to continue because it's bearing fruit the last couple of weeks? What am I going to stop doing because it's really not adding any value? And then most importantly, what can I, you know, out of the last couple of weeks of networking with folks who've actually been through the process perhaps, what are some of the best practices I might change and and do? One of the things that I know that when I was younger – I really didn't have, and I was in that position of job searching that I really didn't have a concept of is, is something that I've come to learn later in life is what's now referred to as a personal brand. Hmm. And you talk about that in Hired. So can you elaborate on, on what that is and what that means? Sure. As a matter of fact, um, when I was in my first career transition, me being, uh, I would say, maybe less knowledgeable of personal brand. I, I mean, I always thought the product has a brand, a company has a brand, but does an individual have a brand? And ironically, it does. That's basically how you show up, you know, on your social media, personally, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then how do you develop that over a period of time that says, hey, you're the person that I can go to if I'm struggling with my culture. You're a person that I can go to if I'm struggling in job search and I just don't know what my plan should be. Uh, that's that's actually something I want to tap into for a second because 
we're in the age of oversharing mm-hmm. and we're also in the age of hyper um, this this or them and being being very kind of anti the other side and you know everybody hates everybody now yeah you really need to be careful in your social media posting don't you because you know, you're ha- half of the people that you're potentially going to connect with probably don't share your beliefs right Absolutely. And it's a good point because actually I, pu- I pull it in the, in the book is I actually was working with a client where um, they were going through final rounds. They were talking through a board and everything. And, uh, you know, everything was going well, as you've probably been there situation. You're the guy, you're the guy until you're not the guy. And, you mm-hmm. know, you, you just never realized it. And after doing a little bit of uh, searching, realized that what they did in the final screening process, they went on all the social media platforms and realized that he had posted something on Facebook literally three years ago that just didn't align with the company values. Now, you know, mm-hmm. as well as I do, what does it take just to turn around and scroll through LinkedIn for people that's posted in the last couple hours, right? To right. go back three years and find something, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh my. Are there, I, I got to think, and I don't know if this is true or not, are there services like we talked about the the uh, the resume robot? I got to think there are services that you can plug into that says show me everything that's from this guy. But I I don't know. It'd be a lot of dog pictures from if it were me. And, yeah, and funny pictures of my son. But George, how has the job market changed since the pandemic? Ooh. Um, well. Prior to, the average professional was taking anywhere from seven to 12 months to find an opportunity. Post-pandemic, it got down to probably about three or four months, right? As a matter of fact, I had a podcast to help people in job transition every other Saturday for a number of years. And then in December of last year, I I shut it down because anybody who wanted a job had a job. And then ironically enough, all these tech companies started laying off. And it's like, okay, where's all that information, George, right? And so I still think even in the last six to eight weeks, it's probably between three and five months to find your opportunity. But the, mm-hmm. the best way to turn around and better your odds are creating kind of what we talked about, the day in the life, making sure that you have a, you know, uh, a value proposition over a, uh, an elevator pitch, which really just drives me crazy that people actually do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things that I, I thought really resonated from from the, the the first book that I read called Hired was that you talked about the importance of networking, and you even shared a little earlier that you are an introvert yes. by nature. So, how did you overcome that, and what can you recommend for people to to network? Yeah, um, a lot of people, including myself, is is that you know I'd rather sit in a room in the corner and not speak to anybody. However, what I found in a lot of the the initial discussions was, is that's really going to be where I'm going to find my next opportunity. So I've got to find a way to do that. And we're probably all maybe in the same age group where we learned how to swim by our parents picking us up and tossing us in the deep end, right? Well, that's not going to fly for anybody that's actually uh, an introvert, right? So I help people kind of, you know, wade into the pool. And so mm-hmm. that they can get into the deep end and hopefully the shortest period of time that makes them land their next role faster. Got it. Are, are there common places that people should should check in with networking? Like, is it meetups or chambers or how, how do you encourage people to find those places to find the right people? 
Well, you know, you can do a search in any particular um, major city to find out the networking, you know, the meetups, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I always tell people to try all of them because the few that sure. work for me might not work for you, right? But you're going to yeah. find one or two. And I always tell people don't spend all your time there, right? Because uh, I tend to people, there's always the, the, the crowd that goes in there and tries to get everybody's card without actually learning anybody anything about anybody. And that's not mm-hmm. networking, right? Um, right. But I'd say go out there, find it, and then just say, hey, I'm a, I want to talk to two or three and get to know these people really well, develop the relationship over time. And they may turn out, as I talk about at the end of the book, you're part of your personal board of advisors in your career transition process. Yeah. I think the best, um, I have no shame when it comes to meeting new people. So it, but it, 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 it's also something that depending on the day, I, I just maybe really don't want to do. So the best advice I ever heard with networking is uh, there's a, the, it's called the princess bride methodology. Uh, three parts to it. Announce who you are, give a common frame of reference, and then talk about an expectation of what it would be like to work together. Mm-hmm. Now, why that's the princess bride is, you know, First, identify your, your yourself. Give your name. My name is, my name is Montoya. Amiga Montoya. Yeah. And then the second part is um, you killed my uh, father. How do you uh, give a common frame of reference? You killed my father. Uh-huh. And then third is what what can you expect out of our relationship? Prepare to die. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, maybe don't go around threatening to kill everybody you meet, but that's that's uh, I I totally love that. Yeah, and my process is very similar. You know, one of the things I try to tell people in your first networking meeting, and, and this is the hard thing with people in job transition, they think it's all about themselves. I got to find a job, right? And I try to tell people is that your first networking meeting should be split 70-30. Let the individual that you're talking to, because they are honoring you by giving time, because that's more important and costly than any money, right? Because they can't get that time right. back, right? Mm-hmm. So I say generally get an understanding of who they are how you potentially can help them, and you can in job transition because you've got connections, et cetera. But truly get to know them. And then that 30% is really, to your point, who are you? That's the value proposition. Less than 30 seconds, who are you? And then more importantly, what value you bring to them or the potentially maybe some connections that they might know of. And then the last thing is your ask. That's one of the things I think I even myself in my first job transition, the first couple of months, I struggled with. And I lost probably a good opportunity to really get the additional network connections that would land my next role. Hmm. Cool. What uh, uh, something that I've struggled with a lot, I think, is is probably good to talk about at this, at this point in the process. Is George, uh, what's a what's imposter syndrome? <laughs> I love this. I tell people all the time, you know, be yourself because everybody else is taken. I think what <laughs> happens is is that. When you get long in job transition, you get desperate, you know, and, and, you know, I've seen this before, you know, senior vice presidents of sales are are willing to take a sales manager role, right? And so I kind of use it in the reverse aspect. It's like, you know, you're discounting your abilities. I understand why you're doing that, right? But the fact is, it's also going to send, excuse me, questions for the people out there is like, is this person really going to be engaged in this particular role? You know, because they're, they they can do so much more. Um, so it's really important for you to really just be yourself and continue that process because you will find your next opportunity. And ironically enough, 
all the clients that I've worked with in the last couple of years, they've always moved on to a better opportunity. And that's why I always say that's the reason why the windshield is larger than the rear view. Just move forward. Ooh, I love that. I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. Um, yeah, because I, I, I suffer from imposter syndrome, too. And it's something that I've been really trying to work on in the last couple of years. And I, I, you know, I've been at my job for a decade. I'm good at, I'm good at it. My bosses are generally happy, but it's still every day. Sometimes it's a struggle to think, Oh God, what if people find me out? And, 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 you know, it's just one of those things you just got to, you have to recognize, I think within yourself and recognize that it's, it's, it's both okay to feel that way and also not really true at the same time. You know, the biggest powerful thing that you can have is being comfortable in your own skin. And that is truly challenging, especially when you're in job transition, is because you're always second guessing. You know, I'm 55. There's ageism. You know, all these things that are, are, are weighing on people's mind. It's like, OK, what I've learned in the military, you got to embrace the suck. Right. You just got to power through and you've got to be able to do maybe 10 times what you're doing now. And you just got to find a way to do that. Yeah, and that's the 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 last thing on the higher higher side of the, the conversation today. I want to talk about because years ago, I was thinking while well, I was thinking about uh, us, us talking today, and I I remember when I was a recruiter, I was sort of a weirdo in that I would always look for people who were significantly older than I am because they were uh, I always I felt they were much more bankable as as a potential employee because they just had a different level of work ethic. Than, than everybody else. And they were overlooked because people were thinking, oh, I don't want to work with them because they're too old or they're too smart or they're better better than me. Uh, you mentioned ageism, which is why I'm tying mm, this, yeah. this way. Because now I'm of the age where I, you know, 30-year-old me would look at 47-year-old me and go, yeah, that's he's perfect. He's just old enough. So how, how do people combat that? in a digital age. Well, you know, it's interesting is, is that there was just a recent article that came out uh, probably a little over a week ago on LinkedIn, of course, right. That um, stated that the older workforce now is really coming into their own because a lot of business owners are realizing uh, the level of commitment that they have, the level of um, dedication, and they're always reliable, those types of things, especially in a low unemployment rate, they're starting to realize that, you know, these people are, are committed and they're kind of not going to be transitioning every six months or 18 months into a new role. And, you know, that was been a struggle for the last 10 or 15 years is that, hey, I'm, I'm 55 and I don't care anybody to tell anything. It's it's really how you come across. If you come off like you're going to retire in three or four years. Yeah, you're definitely going to struggle finding an opportunity. But if you're ready to turn around and pull the ripcord still and jump out of the airplane, people want that. They want they want leaders and they want people that they're excited to be around that can help them and can motivate them. Right. I, I think we actually met each other for the first time inside of a fractional um, group that we all know. And actually one of our recent podcasts was with John Arms of Voyager U. And he's one of the very, very big proponents of the fractional lifestyle. But that's kind of the entire point, right? Like yeah. we have like the, the, experienced generations that we're working with have an entirely def different level of not only dedication, but a depth of knowledge and adaptability that 
folks that are brand new certainly don't have, and there's just not that deep of a well to pull from. So it's a super huge and smart play to find people that are just willing to do the work and take what they've learned and apply it. And by the way, John Arms is a great guy. I've, I've known John for more than five years, and he's helped a lot of professionals jump yeah. out of corporate America successfully. Great, right. great, great, great guests too. Yeah, well, uh, John will obviously be cackling when he when, when he hears that. So. <laughs> yeah, don't tell him. Don't tell him. I want to make sure he listens all the way through. Yeah, I, I want to sort of close the book on the the, the hired and open the new book, the the next book. So, um, I, I think it's a great read to to help people who don't know what to do, and who I, I think one of the things that you'll find if you're out of work is there's never an, there, there's, there's never a lack of resources, but there's never a plan uh, and a discipline because there's all, there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of articles on the top five things you need to do. But one of the things that's really special about hired is it lays out um, a structure that I don't mm-hmm. think anybody who, if you're not ready for it, 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 it's definitely worth it just for that. So where can people find copies of the book? Because I want to make sure that we plug the book. as sure. best yeah. yeah, Hired Cut Your Career Search Time in Half is available both on Kindle, Amazon, and Audible. So if you're in the car and you just want to listen oh, to it. Oh, that's right. Yep. Did, uh, I, and I wanted to ask you about that because I've never met anybody who's had a, who has a book on Kindle. Did you have to record your own Kindle? Did you hire somebody? Yeah, I, I, hired, my, I hired somebody. And there's definitely people out better than there. And of course, there's always the question, well, it's not your voice, George, but I picked somebody that was relevant um, and also inspirational, and they sounded a lot better than I did. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Yeah, well, I work with this guy who's got a voice for radio all the time. So <laughs> That's what I kind of say. I got the face for radio. <laughs> well, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't say that but uh okay so let's <laughs> let's transfer to the next book uh let's 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 close the chapter on that one uh and you know whatever dad joke you want to apply here and uh tell us about ignite engage retain yeah so this is really kind of what I would call my signature book it, it was it would have been the first book I wrote if you told me I was going to write hired uh five years prior I would have told you you're crazy Um, But Ignite, Engage, Retain is really a culmination of the last 25 plus years experience and leadership roles that I've had. And I actually reached out to more than 30 CEOs, CFOs and CHROs to get their perspective. And I wanted to say, you know, is this just my perspective? Is this just a Minnesota challenge that we're having? Is this a U.S. or global? But it's a global challenge of how how do I ignite my workforce how do I engage the team, whether they're in a hybrid sense or what have you? And most importantly, how do I retain my best talent? And the thing is, is that um, a lot of businesses are doing it wrong. I mean, like we talked about the ATS system and everything else, that always has to be revamped. And it talks about it in the book. But to me, it's important in, in the last five or six months shows all these technology companies were complaining about being able to retain. Now they're laying them off like crazy. And it's like, okay, you've really just tipped your colors, right? Yeah. And that's, that's really hard. And I think that's, for, for me as, as a business owner, you know, this, is, this is where I really you know, devoured the book because it's like, you know, what we need to do is keep the people that we have. And the worst thing that you can have is a disengaged person that stays on. So, you know, if, if people are just 
pulling the pulling the cord. And we've we've had experiences. I have a client that actually had this experience. They went through and they had a writer that was working with them that we were partnering with, and um, they were on contract. This person was on contract. And we found out together after that person left that they had basically not done anything for the past month. So there were like dozens of blog posts that weren't written and articles and all that stuff. And that's that whole quiet quitting thing, yes. right? Yeah. So how do you, how do you combat the, the quiet quitting and, and just the general apathy that a lot of people feel, especially given all of the remote work and stuff and all the new challenges that are in there? Yeah. Um, good question. You know, one of the things that uh, I've seen over the course of the year, and you've seen a lot of articles that really prompted me to write this book was, is that this lack of employee engagement, right? And all these metrics, right? You know, mm-hmm. only 16% of the workforce is actively engaged, et cetera. Right. And so what I realized was, is, you know, I've come behind, let's say, less than desirable leaders and found that it's really the leaders that are not engaged. There's a reason why the employees aren't engaged, right? They're not in their office or they're in their hybrid sense, you know, barking orders from their home office, especially Mm -hmm. through COVID, right? And you're not really actively engaged in understanding what their trials and tribulations are and their aspirations. And how are you aligning that to the business goals and objectives so that you can develop a career path for each individual? And you can do this right now. The, mm-hmm. You know, gone are the days that somebody's going to commit to 20 to 25 years because we just know on both sides, it's just not there anymore. But right. the fact is, is you can actually develop a career uh, path for somebody that will stay with you between five and seven years. And if you can do that, that's a success as opposed to getting them to turn around every 18 months. So you've really got to be out there. You know, um, one of the things that I did simply in um, during COVID was I just hosted, you know, a coffee chat morning and in late morning for yeah. all eight factories that I was working for. And the response back was during, after we came out of COVID very successfully, by the way, um, was is that, George, we not only understood what was going on in each factory on a daily basis, but more importantly, we spent probably 70% of the time with just how are people feeling, right? What's going on in your world? What, you know, what's the temperature like in California versus in, in Boston, Massachusetts, right? And that just keeps people engaged. It's like, hey, they care about what I'm, I, I'm about, not just a number. Right. When CEOs and C-level people think, how do they, how, how do they, what are some early warning indicators that culture is a problem in a company? Well, first and foremost, I talk about the, the book is, is that the culture is the shadow the leader casts, right? So if the, if the culture is not there, it's obviously coming, you know, from the top or at least coming from the top of the division or the department. So it's really important for leaders to be self-reflective. Right. And that's a painful thing, especially when you're going to open up to honest feedback. You've got to be willing to say thank you for the feedback, but more importantly, take action. The worst thing a leader can do is basically ask for input and then never act on it. Right. And I've been I've been there. And that's literally just, you know, career suicide um, in itself. But I think the fact is, is just, you know, having those one on ones. I say it's the basic stuff. I'm an army guy. You've got to be able to read something on a battlefield in three seconds or return enemy fire on a piece of equipment. So it's really mm-hmm. got to be simple for folks, right? Are you having one-on-ones? 
Do you understand the trials and tribulations that your team is experiencing? And this is the difference. I tell people that there's different, there's nine different types of leadership. Um, and there's also the difference between managers and leaders. Managers bark orders and, you know, basically push, you know, push people, push people, push people versus leaders lift people up and make them more successful, remove roadblocks for them to be more successful. Because when they're successful, the organization is successful and you are as a leader. I admit that's one of my struggles as a leader is that I'm, I'm pretty good at the soft side of working with people and checking in and, uh, and, and working on, you know, the, the easy parts of the culture. But what I do tend to struggle with is the accountability stuff and Mm -hmm. making sure that, you know, people are actually doing what they need to do and that we're tracking and measuring and improving. So how do how do you keep that delicate balance between making sure that people feel heard and cared for and making sure that they actually do the things they're supposed to do? Yeah, that is a science. And I mean, as I said, every, I mean, we're, we're in, we're in an environment now we've got five generations. You know, when I was growing up early in my career, there was only two generations to manage. And you Mm -hmm. think that that was difficult. Now try to manage five different generations. So I think the most important thing is understanding the people's skills and abilities and aligning them to the organization's skills and abilities as much as possible so that they feel engaged, they feel, um, I would say, empowered to make the decisions. But then you've got to basically ask them. Uh, what I try to do is I try to key, create job scorecards for individuals so that sure, they know, yeah. yeah, so that they know that, hey, you, you have to do certain things on a daily and monthly scenario, but there's definitely mm-hmm. projects. And we need to have this, you know, one-on-one or in a team environment to see how each project interfaces, but more importantly, how are we moving the needle? And it's in your responsibility to escalate. That's one of the other things that businesses really have a difficult time is being able to create an environment that I can escalate without retaliation, but actually get action. Right. And that, that is just, especially for the more junior folks that might not have ever had that relationship or been able to or encouraged to push back, to raise your hands and yes. say, this, this I don't get, you know, they don't want to admit weakness. And so fostering that culture, and I suppose it all comes down to transparency, right? I mean, Absolutely. you need to be very clear with both culture and with expectations. Do you think cool. that that was that, that person you were talking about, Dave, who didn't do anything, do you think they they just, they didn't feel comfortable doing that asking for help or saying something. And then it just got worse and worse. Or do you think it was something where the the quiet quitting that you talked about? You know, in that particular case, I think it was probably after talking to that, to the person's manager, it seemed to come down to, it was more of a quiet quitting thing where maybe they were just checked out and, you know, maybe there was, there was some other issues there as well. Like maybe there was some real depression to yeah. deal with, which is an entirely different thing. Right. So, right. you know, the, the age now, and I think this is a good thing, but you know, when we started working, you know, the three of us, um, middle-aged, you know, sorry, sorry to give it away oh. if you couldn't tell from, from looking, but, uh, we had, we all have a little silver and, uh, for for us, when we started working, there was no such thing as, you know, how's your mental health? Yeah. But now, you know, A, it's it's much more pronounced and and uh visual in, in the society. But B, I think there's just so much more 
issues with social media and isolation and all of that stuff that it's just, it, it is tougher out there right now. So how, how do you deal with that? And you know, how, do you, how do you keep an eye on your employees' mental well-being aside from just culture? Well, you know, one of the things in the last couple of years, I think, first of all, a leader's responsibility is be a lifelong learner, right? And part mm-hmm. of that is, you know, what I've learned in the last is really understanding body language because, you know, the, the voice can tell you one thing, but the body language mm-hmm. will tell you another, you know, mm-hmm. people leaning in versus kind of laid back, or whatever, checked out. Those are the things when you're speaking, you have to really be cognizant enough to say, oh, you know what? I realized speaking in this forum that, you know, Sally was over there kind of looking off looking over in the distance and really not paying attention and then making it an effort to go back to that individual and say, Hey, listen, you know what? I'd like to get your perspective of how that discussion went. Um, and back to your point of creating the environment. I mean, we are inherently grown up to be, you know, don't raise your hand, don't call somebody out, don't get them in trouble. So you've got to be able to change people's beliefs, and environment so that they feel comfortable with doing that, right? And once you're able to do that, and you can't do it on a dime, you got to be able to mm-hmm. over a period of time. But when people realize that, hey, I brought an issue up and it was resolved and it didn't come back on me because my effort was to either improve something or improve somebody's you know, mental capability, stability, etc. I think if there's a genuine interest of an individual you get that power back and the overall organization becomes better for it. For sure. You talk about the book about uh, employee uh, burnout. What are some of the early indicators and warnings of employee burnout? Well, one of the things is really just body language, right? Maybe their efficiency has dropped or their ability to ask for more work or projects, you know, that Sally's always been an A player, right? And they, you know, the first project that comes up, they're always wanting to be on that. You know, one of the examples I used in the book was talking with a client. They realized that, you know, they were in COVID and one of the people that was on their team was always engaged. But recently in the last three or four months, we found out that they weren't asking for new projects, et cetera. And I asked that person, hey, you know, I think it's probably time to have, you know, maybe weekly check-ins with this person, right? Because, A, they're in a home office environment. They're not really exposed to interface, et cetera, during that time. And so I I gave her a couple of examples to kind of get her back into the fold. And the simple things, you know, like, hey, I noticed that every time um, that she was on online, she was always had this $9 Starbucks. So I actually did DoorDash and did that for a couple of times just to recognize that. And that just basically turned her overall performance. After three or four months of not being engaged, she was back in it. She was asking for more projects. She was asking, you know, how do I get to the next level? And that discussion between the manager changed for the better. Excellent. I've always said you can only you never underestimate the 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 power of uh, power of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most what addictive the, drug. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, 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 certainly true. Um, what are some of the uh, most? Uh, how do you how do you gauge culture? How can you really get around get your fingers and hands around what your culture is? Is it measurable? Or is it one of those things like? The Supreme Court's definition of porn, where you just sort of know it when you see it, you know what it is and what it isn't. 
Well, you know, uh, culture is definitely a different uh, thing to manage in every organization, right? But I always mm-hmm. tell people is that if you don't like the culture, it's probably because you you didn't do something as a leader, right? So I think, first of all, you got to really understand um, your core values. I mean, a lot of companies basically develop core values. They slap them on the wall and they don't do anything for them. You know, people are like, well, what is it? They point to them. They really don't truly live them and breathe them. So when you're hiring and you're promoting and you're, you're, you're mentoring and coaching to the core values that you think were so important for the business, that helps really kind of adjust the sales. I always tell people, you know, and I, I've been going in a lot of organizations and, and, and improving and turning things around. I hate the word turnaround and I hate mm-hmm. the change, you know, the change agent because a, no one likes to change. Right. And I love this because I actually, one of the CEOs like, we need a change agent. And I said, okay, well, let me come to your home, you know, your home office on Sunday and we're going to change some things. Whoa, 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 whoa. Right. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, you, that's how people feel, right? But I always tell people that you can enhance everything, right? Because enhancement is like, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I'm tweaking things over a period of time. And just like a sailboat, I'm going to go in the right direction with those adjustments. And that's where it's all about, is people want somebody that's going to recognize their efforts and the things that they're doing well, outline the things that they need to improve on, and more importantly, give them the tools that they can adjust the sales in the right direction. Can you share a success story from a company that successfully implemented what you talk about in the book? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, one of the tools that um, I outline in the book and um, I, the terminology is creating a war in your organization. Now, not the war that you and I, well, at least specifically like I did from Desert Storm, know a war to be, but it's with yeah. all resources, right? So what we did collectively is we worked with the entire leadership team to understand what is the one big thing that's struggling in the business, right? And then what we did was we identified support for each particular discipline to say, this is our focus, right? Mm -hmm. So their problem was, is that, you know, they had probably $2.7 million in backlog. Their on-time delivery was probably best 67% in the last three years, right? So A, not having, not not making existing customers happy, not being able to secure new customers. And what we were able to do is we were able to pull that team together. And in 12 weeks, now granted, prior to this, this is 12 years, this is uh, three years of history that they never got better than 67% on time delivery. And they never got better than 2.1 million in, in past due backlog, right? In 12 weeks, we went from that to 97% on-time delivery, and we cleaned up all but about $300,000 in backlog in 12 weeks. And they were trying to do it in the last three years and weren't being able to move the needle. So it's getting everybody focused Uh, mm -hmm. on one thing and then understanding how does my department help this department and how does this department help that department? And that's the success we were able to do in 12 weeks. What advice do you have for managers who are struggling to create a positive workplace. First, either in the middle or the C level. I, you know, you talked about the shadow, the leader casts. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, I would say first is self reflection, right? Do the do a self assessment. Where where are you in your culture, and more importantly, where you want to be? That's kind of my why is helping people define where they are and where they want to be, and then more importantly, what support do you need? at each particular step. And again, this also may be looking at leadership, right? Because 
you may have gotten to a point in an organization where certain leaders have really tapped out their capabilities, personal cap- capabilities. As a matter of fact, in my first book, I, I met a great um, leader uh, when I cold called the CEO. And he was so prominent. He says, you know what, George? I know that my current organization is $1.1 billion. I can take this company to $2 billion. But after that, they basically need to find a different leader. That was so powerful, right? Because he knew his limitations. He knew his capabilities. But he was having fun in the trenches currently in his role. And I think that's one of the things leaders really need to understand is what's my personal capabilities and restrictions? And where am I short? And can I get the resources to help me so that I can move forward? Because the leader's responsibility, especially a CEO, is to look out three years from now and say, it's mm-hmm. great. And the chief operating officer's responsibility is to create that road, right? Put all the obstacles, put all the, the people, you know, waving traffic and bringing in the concrete and everything else. And the people that are doing it every day have sometimes a difficult ability to see that three year. So it's the leader's responsibility to say, here's what your role is going to do in order to get me to that vision. And if you're not doing that, that's probably one of your biggest struggles in your organization. Is how does my role in the organization impact the growth, profitability, and success? Wow. Well, I don't think we That's could have great. ended any better than that. So yeah. thank you, George, for uh, joining us. I want to make sure that if somebody's interested in talking with you, they know how to find you. So if somebody's looking for you, where hey, they do can, they find you? They can call me on the phone, 952-221-8868, or they can email me at uh, George C. is in Charlie Murray, all one word, at gmail.com. And people can find both books on Amazon? Yep, both books, or they can get on my website, uh, George Clayson. C-L-A-Y-S-T-I-N, Murray, all one word again, dot com. They're there. Perfect. And the books are Hired, Cut Your Career Search Time in Half, and Ignite, Engage, Retain. Ignite your workforce, engage your team, and retain your talent. Thank you, George. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, George. And Dave, uh, next time I get a package, just don't open it. (laughs)